Station 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. At this point, most of my 17th year is a hazy memory, but I still remember everything about my first car. My four-door Chevy Nova, light blue with black and white striping, was technically a compact, but it could comfortably sleep two inside. It had bench seats, including one in the back that could be removed and hide contraband. Every time I did it, I made a Millennium Falcon reference. I bought Radio Shack speakers for $39.95 and strung wire underneath the flooring. I remember the first song I played was ZZ Top's Sleeping Bag. It's 30 years later, but I still remember where the gear shift was, the emergency brake, the cigarette lighter, and the front hood release. When I close my eyes, I'm driving it right now. My First Car is the latest storytelling series on the big event, joining burrito stories and the bands we follow. I wanted this one to have a coming-of-age, stand-by-me vibe, so I invited two of my favorite Chronicle reporters and storytellers, Susan Slesser and Lizzie Johnson. Susan was just named California Sports Writer of the Year by the National Sports Media Association. She shared the award with future The Big Event guest Ann Killian. And Lizzie Johnson, our wildfires reporter, deserves all the awards. She wrote incredible story after incredible story under difficult circumstances in 2018. And Susan and I begin this episode by asking a few questions about Lizzie's fire beat. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Welcome to the big event, and welcome Susan Slusser and Lizzie Johnson. Hi, Peter. Hey. Um, I feel like chances are a story is going to break during this podcast, and one of you will have to report while you're talking about your first car. Susan, this has happened, actually. You visited my wife's classroom, and the story has grown bigger and bigger as my wife and I tell it, but basically... Susan, I, do you remember the yes. specifics? Yes, I was speaking to your wife's journalism class at Alameda High School, which was delightful um, when I got a notice, notification that Andrew Bailey had won the American League Rookie of the Year Award uh, and followed in short order by a phone call from Andrew Bailey. So I had to duck outside and talk to Andrew Bailey for his story. I came back, though. It was it was good. It was That's nice. the best lesson those kids journalism, could have learned. Yeah, journalism in action. Yeah. Well, so glad to have both of you here. Lizzie, back from the fire. Yes, I was in Butte County all of last week. All of last week, but no fires right now, right? No fires right now, just lots of ash. Everything is leveled, but the Starbucks there is open, so <laughs> okay. one I guess thing. that's an indication of life going on, I guess. Your stories have just been amazing from, from Butte County. Really, Thank you. Really, like, gut-wrenching and heart-wrenching. And, Thank you so much. Well, I'm excited to be here on your podcast for the very first time, Peter. I, I'm... Super excited to have you here. We're going to talk about our first cars. Um, we've been exchanging messages and photos on Slack. The photos are fantastic, which we'll put on social media. But while you're here, Lizzie, I regret not um, having you in here when some of your great reporting in 2018 was going on. And I was hoping Susan and I could just pick your brain a little bit because I think your beat is very interesting and vital and happened suddenly and was a really... It was the product of something horrible, but for the Chronicle, I think you just really shined. And I want to ask you a couple fire questions. Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. I have, I have some too. Yeah. I, I hope f- I have answers. <laughs> First of all, 
how did this beat happen? Did it happen kind of slowly, or was there a day where they said you're going to be the fire reporter, or did this kind of happen in stages? It just mutated over time, I think. So I moved over to Metro last summer and didn't really have something to report on. I felt like I kept stepping on people's toes. So when the Wine Country wildfires happened, uh, then Metro editor Trapper Byrne called me, and he was like, okay, you're going to be on recovery for a year, see what that's like. And at the end of that year, which was this summer, fires just kept happening. So they kept sending me out, and I was going up and down I-5 for weeks at a time, and it just never ended. So now we're starting another year. What What are you doing now? I mean, you're still on this beat. There Are there still plenty of stories to cover? Are you preparing for the next season? What What's, what's going through your head and what's going through your beat right now? I think I overwhelm my editor sometimes because I have so many story ideas and they involve going all over the state to write about what these fires mean in the aftermath. Because even when the flames go out, it doesn't mean that people's lives just go back to normal. And I think that's when it is most important to keep writing about it and helping everyone else realize that the devastation goes on. And living in the wake of something like that is really, really grueling and traumatizing. What about you? Do you get some time off? Do you get to recharge? Um, Just personally, are you able to kind of do something for yourself over this time after all that time that you spent there and telling those really tough stories? I try to. It is difficult because, like I said, I have so many stories. So I find myself taking a break and then I'll end up Googling about fires for an hour. And I'm like, oh, Lizzie, no, take a break. (laughs) But one thing I do always do is I try and go to Dairy Queen when I'm (laughs) out covering fires because they don't have them in the Bay Area. Yeah. And I always wonder whether Audrey... Cooper, our editor-in-chief, notices that on the expense report <laughs> is there are a lot of Dairy Queen blizzards. So it makes me happy. Well, whatever yeah. works. I yeah. Mean, yeah. yeah. you got to eat subtime. What's the fire suit like? It is still way too big. We're waiting on new Nomex suits. So I heard last week that I can go get fitted for one that actually fits, which will be nice. Because the sleeves are too long, I have to roll them up. I kind of look like I'm wearing my father's clothes. Is it really heavy? It's not heavy, but it's just clunky and like the sleeves fall down and I kind of trip over them. And, you know, I already look pretty young, so it's hard to waltz up and be like, hello, I am a Chronicle reporter and I cover fire because they look at me and they're like, really, you're the fire reporter? Your suit doesn't fit. So a new suit would be awfully nice soon, I hope. Soon. I I remember a Twitter exchange we had during all of this and... um, we were talking about food and specifically like expired food. And I always have that moment with a smoothie that I forget in my backpack and then I find it and I'm like, is a day and a half okay for a smoothie? You know, is it still edible? You must go through this a lot. I mean, what is eating like for you when you're covering a fire and specifically are you kind of making those judgment calls? Fire reporting is so unglamorous because you're in an area where there's nothing open. There are no bathrooms, so if you want to pee, you have to find a coffee cup in the back of your car or a tree where hopefully no firefighter will stumble over you. And then for food, you kind of have to live off of whatever you can buy, which means a lot of warm yogurt or dried mangoes, or sometimes someone will give me a 24-hour lunch, which is this big brown paper bag of food that firefighters eat, and they're so good. 
they had tiny little pecan pies in them during the campfire. Uh-huh. And that'll usually last me a couple of days because I don't eat very much. But mostly it's, yeah, eating a lot of really dubious food where you're like, well, I hope I'm not going to get sick from this. And if I do, then I guess it's time for a break. Yeah. We need to send you with some cases of energy bars or something, I feel yeah. like. It always happens so suddenly. I need a grab bag. That would probably be the answer to this. Yeah. Do you find yourself more like fire prepared personally or like kind of just aware of fire surroundings and, you know, clearings around houses and things like that when you visit friends? And Yeah. I went to Grass Valley a couple of weekends ago and stayed at this Airbnb and my friends were like, will you stop freaking out about fire? Because I was like, there is no defensible space around this house. There are so many dead trees. They have not trimmed at all. And they were like, calm down. We're kind of sick about hearing you talk about fire. So it's probably going to be okay. It's raining outside. So. Yeah. I, I, and I can't even imagine what it's like out there. But I, I do have one question. Um, I don't want to make light of any of this, but Guy Fieri, have you gotten to one of his barbecues or... I went to it on Thanksgiving. (laughs) You did. I was talking to his son. I didn't even realize it was his son because I'm not very in the know about celebrities and all of that. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'm Guy Fieri's son. And I was like, oh, cool. (laughs) And then later my videographer was like, yeah, Guy Fieri, like the, the guy with the bleached hair who's over there cooking that everyone wants to talk to. And I was like, oh, well, then. Well, I will, I will always defend Guy Fieri now. I, I wrote one of the first stories about him, and he was the nicest guy. And everybody, like, harshes on Guy Fieri. And all I see him doing is, like, going around and barbecuing for people when they're in distress. So. Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. He seems nice. Yeah, that's a big thumbs up for me also, Peter. All right, yeah. we're all on positive on Guy yeah. Fieri. This is definitely going to be the worst segue ever from fire coverage to um, cars. But um, first of all, I want to say how proud of you we are that—, that you know, seeing those stories come in. I'm just proud to work for the Chronicle, and I know a lot of people feel that way. So I wanted to say that on the record. I also wanted to ask you about what you're driving. What is, is it a company car? Are you driving your car? Yeah, it's a, it's a company car, which is a Corolla. Conveniently, oh. I also have a Corolla, so I really like that because it feels the same as my car. And, you know, being a journalist, when you're out of the office, your car is like your rolling office in your bedroom and you sleep in the back of it. You file all of your stories. It's like your safe little shell when you get overstimulated and just want to blast a song for a couple of minutes and not think about what you're covering. So I am thankful we have these staff cars because it's like my second home in my office and it feels like my own car, which I love. So we're going to talk first cars. This is a spiritual sequel to when um, Susan and I talked about our bands that we follow. I just have a feeling this is going to be a good discussion. Um, I may be wrong. We'll find out. Do you want me to go first or do one of you want to go first? I'm going to give you the option. I think you should go first. This is your podcast. Okay. Plus, we've seen the photo already. (laughs) We want to know. All right. My first car. Um, and you can ask questions as I'm going. You can interrupt me. You can mock me. There are going to be points where you'll want to. 1962 and a half Chevy 2 Nova, powder blue. Uh, my grandfather bought it off the lot. Mexican immigrant, my grandfather, my grandparents. So it, probably the first car that he bought. Uh, passed it down to my aunt, Susan Leal. She was uh, on the board of supervisors here. And she drove it all through law school. Goes back to him. Passed down to me in 1987, $300 I paid him, and I have this car. 
kind of on its last legs, <laughs> but um, it was not in really great shape. We'll get into that. But I, I want to set the scene. I'm not going to pretend like my my Burlingame upbringing was like the Outsiders or anything, because it wasn't, and nobody's going to buy that. But back in 1987, it was not all rich in Burlingame. There was very much on one side of El Camino Real a distinct middle class, and then on the other side, it was very very wealthy wealthy people living up in the hills. And my high school was a bunch of us. We'll just call us the greasers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we won't do that. But uh, middle class side, and um, we're driving our kind of older cars, second generation, third generation, hand-me-down cars, and then there's a lot of BMWs and stuff. So that's the scene. Uh, right quarter panel on the back, mangled beyond repair. So my chances of straightening out this car and turning it into like a cool American graffiti muscle car are gone. The drum brakes were deteriorating slowly, and the only way to repair it was to get disc brakes, and that would have cost like $1,000. I don't even know what those things are. Yeah, I, I knew all about it back then because I just, basically this car, as I'm driving it, has a death sentence. Gas mileage, pretty sure it was measured like like gallons to the mile, not miles to the gallon. I mean, <laughs> it is not an efficient car. Um, but this car did have positives. Extremely sturdy. Uh, I was in no danger in this car. I got rear-ended by a Mazda RX-7, and that RX-7 curled underneath my car, and it, it looked like it was just like peeking out the back of it. My car was undamaged. It was a little harder. I had to jiggle the, the key to open the trunk. And um, my car was pretty much indestructible. And it was great for like drive-ins and stuff like that. You could sit on the hood. So imagine this in like a modern car, you know, where they're trying to make it all light to get better gas mileage, not in my Chevy Nova. You could drive to the Burlingame drive-in, pile three or four people on the hood of the car or, or the, the, you know, the front or the top and just chill and watch a movie. And I'm not worried about anything getting dented because this car, Meteor Strike, is pretty much what you need to destroy this car. So a um, little bit of a S disturber I was in high school. I would poke the bear a little bit, and I was a little guy. I grew a couple inches in college. I'm not super big now, but I was real tiny and involved in like debating in the school newspaper. Um, specifically, I had this one football player who I saw in a classroom kind of gave another kid a hard time, and I put his number in the comic, and I actually had a guy in my journalism class who was a little bit tougher, and he was on the football team, and he said, I'll offer you protection, you know, so this guy won't beat you up. Oh and he gosh. did. I think he went and talked to the guy. But for the rest of the year, this guy would come up to my car and get both fists and slam it on the car and, like, go, you're dead. And it would never <laughs> go further than that. But all year, if I ran into this guy, um, I'd get that kind of response. A couple other situations like that. I was just kind of that kid like if I had something smart I had to say I was going to say it to my own detriment so what I'm about to tell you what happened to this car there are many suspects oh no but, uh, came out in the car one day parking lot and someone had taken a key and scrawled the word lemon on my car and like big like lemon probably I don't know what the font size was, but it was probably like, think of like a screaming headline in the Chronicle when a big news is breaking. 
Does that mean something? Lemon. lemon. Yeah, mm. lemon. W- Susan. Car. Yeah. Yeah. Craftastic oh. car. So it was an insult. It, it's like the worst thing you can say to okay. a car. You were yeah. talking about being short, so I thought maybe they meant your head was as small as a lemon <laughs> no, or no. something. <laughs> no, but that would have been accurate. Um, <laughs> I was uh, four foot eleven, ninety something pounds as a freshman, and by the time I graduated, I was. You know, I, I grew like junior year, but I was still five seven, five eight. Um, so I had this big lemon, didn't know what to do with it. Finally, like a week into it, I decided like, there's only one way out of this. I'm going to take a key, use my head, use my journalism, future journalism skills to make this into a positive. And I changed the L to a D and then scrawled in my own car, the words love. So it said love demon. Nice. Like that's my nickname, you know, in 87, <laughs> it wasn't, but, um, so 87, so for the rest of that year, I drove around in this car, um, that said love demon on it, <laughs> scrawled with a key and, um, just had my journey, had my travels as a senior in high school, doing all the things that seniors do, um, had a lot of wonderful adventures in this car. Uh, I want to talk to you about the end, uh, new the days were numbered in this car and we knew it. I knew when I went away to college, it wasn't gonna make it to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Breaks are getting worse and worse and worse. Finally, one day I had this kid that, um, I worked at the local rec center, babysitting little kids, like summer rec program. And there was this one kid whose mother or father, I forget, was an Apple executive. And they would pay me a lot of money, like really big money to on the weekend watch over him. It was like the best babysitting gig ever. When I got into college, they tried to offer me a ton of money not to go to college just so I could, I don't know, be this kid's au pair until he's super old. So we're in the Love Demon and we're up in the hills, Burlingame, there's the hills and the flatlands um, with me and Dallas Winston and Pony Boy uh, from the Outsiders. I go up in the hills to babysit this kid. One day I'm on this giant, like, huge hill think like san francisco the worst hill maybe in like russian hill i start going down this hill hit the brake and the car won't stop oh no yeah and um finally i'm getting toward the bottom i'm picking up speed picking up picking up speed i didn't tell you one key i have an emergency brake but the handle had broken off and there's no Chevy parts around or anything. So I had a, a pliers that I would use to hook onto the brake and pull it. Seems safe. Yeah, super safe <laughs> with an eight-year-old in the car. So I grabbed the pliers, hook it on. I had like one chance to do it, hook it onto the emergency brake, pull the e-brake, and my car does a full Rockford Files, like skid at the bottom, and then just skids gently into a bush. I was so lucky. The curb was kind of low, and it didn't totally wreck the car. It probably would have been a good thing and safe for everyone if the car was wrecked. And that's when I knew it was over. Um, so that's I a very dramatic conclusion. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so I rode the car for the rest of the summer, but I only did it on flatland. Um, it was kind of like, have you ever had a dog that shows signs that it's dying, and you know you got a few more weeks, so you just try to make the most of those few weeks? So I went to the drive-in with the car. I took it to get a sandwich at my favorite place. Probably went out on a date. And uh, and then I went away to college. And honestly, 
I don't even, I still to this day don't know what happened to it. I've never asked my father. I mean, it's like a dog that died. Like, is I don't want farm upstate? <laughs> that's it, though. There's a little piece of me that says maybe he gave it to someone who fixed it up. And, like, I could go check the license plate someday. And it'll be, like, super nice. And uh, no chance. I mean, it would have cost way too much to fix it up. You could have bought a new pristine Chevy 2 Nova for, for less. But I still don't know what happened to that car, and I kind of just don't want to know, because uh, it was a good car, and uh, it's a good time in my life, and I have good memories, and uh, yeah, that's my car story. I, I feel like I don't know if it's going through your head, but me and Bobby McGee, the line somewhere in Salinas, I let her slip away. That's like me in this car right now. So I'm glad I didn't tear up, but thank you for hearing my story. I have a question for you. <laughs> okay. So you continued driving it around for the last few weeks to the drive-in, to the sandwich shop on a date with non-working brakes? With very, very poorly working brakes. And um, yes, the answer is yes. I mean, I was a dumb kid. I do dumb stuff now, like not quite along that line. But uh, no, I, I continue to drive it. And to be honest, if I didn't have that hard ending that I had to go away to college I probably would have driven it until something horrible happened you wouldn't be here today I wouldn't be here today I also have a question yeah you said 1962 and a half yes is that correct yeah how's what's the half I don't know the answer to that but uh Chevy Chevy Nova's uh, maybe they came out every half year so if you look up 62 and a half Chevy Nova as opposed to 63 this car will pop up so I'm not trying to be like pretentious or anything. I just I don't know the answer, but that's that's the model of the car. I've never heard that before. So that's, that's a good question. Yeah. So that's my Chevy Nova story. Any other questions? No, that's good. That's gonna be tough to top. We Why will did share we the let photo. Him go first. <laughs> that's not. We can't follow up. I know up we on can't that. top it. I got well, the I got the love demon, and I almost killed a kid. But I mean, other than that, it you know. It's the elements of a good story: love, <laughs> near death. <laughs> I will be calling you Love Demon from now on. Sorry, Kelly. <laughs> hashtag. <laughs> hashtag Love Demon. Can that be the new podcast hashtag? That could be. That could be Total oh, SF. No. Hashtag Total Muni 2018. <laughs> hashtag Love Demon. I'm afraid what else would pop up under that hashtag on Twitter. Yeah, that's so true. Maybe yeah, not. Let's not Google maybe it. Maybe not. We won't do that. Susan, you up? I am. And I mine's a little complicated. I kind of have uh, first car A, first car B, and then return to first car A at some point. So when I got my driver's license at the age of 16 in 1982, uh, I drove the family car, the older family car. My dad had the new car. I drove the older car, which was a 19, I've ascertained, 1973 Plymouth Valiant avocado green and it's Ooh. it's built like a torpedo you think your your car was solid this mm -hmm. thing was absolutely it was immense um i remember at one point driving it and the power steering went out and i couldn't steer it was it weighed so much that when the power steering went out a 16 year old could not steer it so i basically just had to park it <laughs> and call call somebody for help uh but yeah that was uh that was car number one uh it was hideous uh, and I, like you, I went, I went to high school in an area that was pretty well-to-do, but I lived on kind of the, I lived on the Pacific Grove side of Pebble Beach. But my high school had a lot, it was like BMWs and lots of fancy cars and then this avocado green, 1973 <laughs> Plymouth Valiant. Uh, but when my grandfather, who lived in San Francisco, went into a, an old folks kind of home in the following year, I got his Toyota Corolla, which that's the one I have photo evidence of. 
Uh, and that was my car outright. I'd been kind of sharing the other one with my mom. Uh, and uh, I had that car throughout my senior year uh, until uh, I was driving home one day. And at Pebble Beach, it's a lot of kind of retirees and elderly folks who don't look <laughs> look where they're going. And this guy pulled out of his driveway right in front of my path in his Rolls Royce. Oh, silver, no. I think Silver Cloud Rolls Royce. And I demolished, essentially... <laughs> And certainly, it really crushed this car. I think the Rolls was actually probably in better shape because those things are pretty well built. But that's it. It was about three three houses from my house. And that's the only time in my life I actually ever swore in my mom's presence because I went running home and I said, the S word, mom, I just hit a Rolls Royce. Uh, but the insurance company said, you know, clearly he was backing out of his driveway. But yeah. that, was, that was the end. That was a sad, sad end to the quite a quite a disparity in in car values <laughs> there poor Corolla uh, and so then I my, my dad just got my mom a new car and I wound up with back with the Plymouth Valiant again and drove that all the way through college until one day it died at the tolls on the Bay Bridge going back from my boyfriend and best friend were both at Cal uh, and I was at Stanford um, and I was driving back across the Bay Bridge and it, it died at the toll booth oh, no. which is yeah not ideal that's not an ideal situation. What happens in that situation? Uh, tow, tow, tow truck comes, and um, I think you still, you asked me, do you still pay the toll? I believe you <laughs> do. I can't re- actually remember. I think my best friend just came and got me and maybe maybe drove me somewhere. But yeah, the toll, the, they came and towed it away. That's the last I ever saw of it. I think it just went to a junkyard. It was, it was dead. It was its time. It would have been 1987, so it had been... It had had a number of years and been driven pretty hard. So. Yeah, it's at yeah. a farm upstate too. It is. It is. It's, I think cars. it's roaming free with your car. <laughs> <laughs> They're best friends. Do you think it was like a good? I mean, would you recommend that kind of car for a young person as their first car? A big car like that was that a good fit? A big tank. Certainly, I was safe. You know, if I had been hit by anything or I lived in an area where there were lots of ditches on the side and people were always driving into ditches. I showed you guys a, a photo of my best friend drove this yellow Camaro that is covered with dents because um, she was constantly driving into ditches on her way to school, including once when she wound up in um, some very nice people's backyard as they were having breakfast on there porch. Um, but yeah, big, solid car when you live in an area that's, you know, 16-year-olds aren't great drivers, so you put some obstacles in their path. They're probably going to hit them <laughs> here and there, as as we found out. Rolls-Royce, that's unfair. That's an unfair obstacle. Yeah. This photo is fantastic, by the way. I, will you please describe it for our listeners? Yes, I don't know what we were doing. It's a it's a two-parter, two photos. I'm on top of my, um, my granddad's, the Corolla, the white Corolla, um, and uh, it looks pretty 80s. I believe I'm. I might be drinking champagne, so I'm guessing it's New Year's Eve. Forget the time frame I said earlier. I'm sure I was at least 21. Uh, and then my best friend is on top of her, uh, her Camaro, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a simpler time. What are the first words you say to someone when you, um, their fault or not, you're a minor and you hit their Rolls Royce? Oh, I think I apologize profusely because I didn't really know who was at fault. You're driving yeah. along and all of a sudden you hit something, you know, I, I think you immediately, and he was furious, of course. I just <laughs> to his Rolls Royce. Um, but as the insurance companies later said, it was it was not my fault. But I think I, at, I was initially ready to take all of the blame because I hit, a, I hit his, his Rolls. 
Yeah. It's very scary. I had that ha- when the person rear-ended me. I just looked at their Mazda, and I'm like, "Your car is so much worse than mine. This must be my fault. <laughs> like my car ate your car." So, yeah, I mean, they're still they are pretty hideous cars, but it was such you know it really evokes the '70s, the late '70s, the early '80s that that style of big, just big bomber cars and that color too. You know, I'm sure you you remember kitchens and were that color. That mm. avocado green, you know, accessories and things. That was huge, that color, for a long time. I think it's due for a resurgence. Yeah, Lizzie, this was like your oven would be avocado green. Like everything's stainless steel now, but avocado green was like the stainless steel of the 70s. Yeah, you're, uh, I, I think we might have had a refrigerator that was avocado green. It was, okay. it was big. Orange. It was sort of like a burnt orange and then avocado green. Those were often the color combinations. A little I sketchy. I like come back soon. I think so. Hmm. People love their avocados. That's, that's true. I really think you need to get the photo on that podcast somehow in the description or something. It's oh, I, too good. Yeah, no, we're going to, I'm using all your photos. You, you signed a waiver. You don't know it. But, <laughs> um, Lizzie, yeah. going back not quite as far. So I don't think I was even alive when your first cars were made. Oh, no. I was born in 1993. <laughs> That's a, so you eat avocado toast then? I do. Okay. That's why yeah. I'm never going to be able to afford a home. <laughs> that's, that's just what I hear. the avocados. But yeah, so my first car was a 2011 Toyota Corolla. But to understand the car, you have to understand my dad first. He got our first family car right before I was born. It was a 1993 Toyota Avalon, and it was white. And he drove this thing up until I turned 16. And... You know, I grew up in Nebraska, so everything is really far apart. I was living on a prairie, so there wasn't much to do out there. And my parents just really didn't trust me behind the wheel of a car. My dad would always say that thing where he was like, no, no, we trust you, but we don't trust anyone else. (laughs) So I would only get this car for maybe hour-long chunks, and I could drive to piano lessons, which was a mile away. And, you know, I would take the long way back and be like, oh, I'm so rebellious. I'm driving by Target and my dad doesn't even know. <laughs> um, so we drove this car until he's still driving that car, actually. It's practically dead because wow. in the Midwest, we re- reuse everything until it's broken. Like my parents' microwave, when it's on the garage door, won't open because it's radiating something. <laughs> and now my dad's car, you have to stick a scissors into the gear to make it go into drive. So I went away to college and still didn't have a car. I would come home and drive this beat-up Avalon. And then one semester, I think it was spring of my freshman year, I came home and there was this blue Corolla in the garage. And, you know, my parents aren't super communicative. They grew up um, not really talking about their feelings. That's what we do in the Midwest. And so my dad just handed me the key and was like, here's your car. And it was this big simple for me where, you know, it it was like they trusted me. They saw me as an adult. They finally were like, okay, we're going to let you leave the nest and be a grown up. And it was just this big moment where I felt so much in that moment, how much my dad loved me, where instead of buying himself a new car, that was at this point, 19 years old, he was getting me the new car. That's unheard of. Yeah. Nobody, nobody gets the new car. Nobody gets the new car. And I think he missed me, and that's partly why he did it. But we named her Cora. (laughs) Nice. And she became this pseudo-member of the family where 
I would drive five hours back to Mizzou, where I was going to school. And when I would come home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, my dad would say, how's Cora? I need to go take her to get her oil changed. And again, just like those tiny acts of love where we wouldn't really talk about what was actually happening, but it was like this act of service. And then in the summer, when I would drive across the country to different internships, to Chicago, to Dallas, he would take Cora in to get the tires rotated or... Um, the oil changed or the alignment fixed. And, you know, there was this one time that I uh, rear-ended a pickup truck on the way back to Nebraska from Mizzou. And I was so scared that my dad was going to be really mad at me about this, like, big hole that I put in the front of my car. It looks like someone punched the front bumper. And I just remember him looking at me, and he was like, you made a mistake. I don't think you should fix it. I think you should leave it. That way, every time you look at it, you remember and you learn from the mistake. Like, there's no reason to fix something like that. It's so superficial. So my car still has that giant hole in the front, and I still think of my dad every time I see it. And then, (laughs) yeah, eventually I drove that car out to San Francisco, and I still have her. I don't drive her very often. You have... Cora's here? Cora's in here. City? Cora's in the city. Oh, my God. And plot for her now. <laughs> She's still here. Um, and I think my, my parents are afraid I'm going to sell her because every time my dad calls, he still is like, how's Cora? Have you taken her in to get her oil changed? You can never sell Cora. I no. can never sell Cora. <laughs> she feels like a celebrity to me now in some weird way. Yeah. yeah. Cora the Corolla. She's bright blue. And my dad is still driving his Avalon which is 25 years old now. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I like your dad. I like my dad, too. Yeah. For, <laughs> it's a good story. First of all, dad of the year. Yeah. I mean, total dad of the year. Second of all, it's like, you know, in Princess Bride, when farm boys keep saying, like, as you wish, but it means I love you. That's what your dad did with this car. It's like every time he fixes it, you know, maybe it's not easy for him to say I love you, but every time you come home, and he fixes the car a little bit. Probably when he saw that hole, he's like, there's something I can do for my daughter who I love. And um, that's just so sweet. He's actually visiting next month. And he called me last week. And he was like, so can I drive Cora while I'm in, in the city? Like, do you think it'll be difficult to drive her around San Francisco? And I was like, no, she's all yours. Take her out. <laughs> she hasn't been out for a while. Ask Peter so. which hills to drive down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which ones to avoid. <laughs> That is an awesome story. Thank you. Um, we were talking about like um, on Twitter once, and I didn't go too deeply into it because you deal with a lot of sensitive issues, and I don't like to make light of things, but I've done it twice on this podcast. So we were talking about who would play you in a movie based on your fire coverage at one point. I think like Cora the Corolla might be the the movie that I'm going to pitch first. Um, that's like, like a Pixar high. kind of. I'm thinking like a what was the one that uh, the sports guy did the with his dog, or no, two, not Tuesdays with Maury, but there was something with the sports guy did with his dog. Oh, Mitch Album. Yeah, yeah. It, was some, it was something like that. Did he write yeah. a dog book? I think he did. Yeah, even if he didn't, I'm just thinking along with you in the car and that that kind of chronological story of you and your dad in the car. This is cinematic. Yeah, I will say the high point with Cora was. Two years ago when I went to cover the Orville Dam nearly collapsing and they shut off all of the highways and I went up to one CHP officer because journalists can go on the closed down highways and I was like so is anyone monitoring these roads for speed and he was like go for it 
So Cora and I gunned down this highway going like 110 miles an hour because there was no one else on the road. And we were listening to this one song about wild horses. And I was like, this is good, Cora. We made it. Oh, my God. I could just close on that. I'm thinking of just hitting stop. And then Cora, we made it would be the end. But um, I did want to ask one thing before we say goodbye. Journalist cars, messy journalist cars. I think the journalism car is kind of a little bit of its own breed. Yeah, they tend to be definitely messier. You know, my husband's also a journalist, so we have two that are. Although I have a new one, I just got a Chevy Bolt, and I'm I'm absolutely determined to keep that thing pristine. It's beautiful and it's all electric, and I don't want it to get gross. So um, check back with me in six months and see that how that's going during baseball season. I'll probably be filled with garbage. But yeah, I think we tend to be, we race off to an assignment or to cover something and, you know, you throw whatever your, you know, your remains of your lunch in the back seat and you forget about it and you keep doing that for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Lizzie. So I think I go against the stereotype. Okay. I am so type A it hurts sometimes. Like I have this row of highlighters in my backpack from pink to blue in rainbow order because I like to highlight my notes people always comment on it and that is the most uh the best example of how I am in my car is spotless she is so clean I have one of those little Febreze things in the air (laughs) vent to make her smell good I vacuum her out once a month I think it's part of my therapy where I'm like okay this is one thing I can do I can keep my car really clean well it's Cora so you got to take good care of her yeah yeah but the staff cars we have here can get disgusting. Yeah. There are things that you find in there where you're like, how long has this half-eaten burrito been back here? <laughs> no. Or like, I found a like a pocket knife in there once. People leave their sunglasses. I'm like, why do people carry some of this stuff around? One time this like beer bottle rolled out from under the seat. And I was like, okay, I wonder who was on assignment <laughs> before me in this one. I get staff car anxiety because, and I haven't been in one in a while, but um, I, I was covering hard news for a while and, and traveling around a lot. And I remember um, back in the day, there was like one gas station you could go to, and it was really out of the way. They had this weird gas card that didn't work at 98% of the gas stations. So anytime I got in the car, it had like an eighth of a tank left. And I think they're, cr- <laughs> I think they're cracking down on that a little bit more. But um, yeah, journalism cars, I get stressed out when I think about it. I remember... One of my first jobs in Santa Maria, um, the editor, we were playing softball one day, and there was occasion for him to give me a ride home, and he's the editor of the paper. And it was this Volvo that, this is in the mid-90s, it was like a 70s Volvo that was so thrashed. It was all rusted out. I don't know how. It was in Santa Maria. You know, there's no seawater nearby. Um, totally rusted out. And I thought to myself, like, what kind of profession am I getting into that my boss's boss's boss is driving this car? So um, journalism cars will always have a place for me. If you ever want to see the real contrast between journalism cars and, um, you know, the, the, the better off, you should see a, a sports lot that has, like, the player cars uh-huh. and then the, the writers that cover <laughs> the team and the, and the other media that cover the team. It's you know, Lamborghinis and Escalades and like at the top of the line, everything. And then you get over to the far side of the lot and it's Corollas and Hondas and they're all beat up and filled with, you know, news- newspapers <laughs> yeah. and trash and McDonald's bags. It's, it's pretty fun. But the stories our cars can tell. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you both for coming on. We're going to share the photos and um, I really appreciate it. And I love both your work. Thank Back you so you. much. Thank you. Lizzie, take care of yourself. 
Susan, whatever story broke during this podcast, um, have fun writing it and do something for yourself when it's over. All right. I'm going to check in with you in six months, see how dirty your car is. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Darling, it's 2 a.m. It's time for closing. The cops, they're all sideways. And I think you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guests, Susan Slusser and Lizzie Johnson. This episode was produced by me, Peter Hartlob. Senior producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.